I had a dream when I was six years old that stayed with me all my life, actually. And I'm about to turn 61, so that's 55 years remembering this dream. So it definitely had an impact on me. I was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the time on Rockford Avenue. And my parents were in in bed uh, one evening. I don't remember the date or the time. Uh, It was in the middle of the night, I'm sure. But I got up in this dream. I dreamed that I got up out of my bed and I went into the kitchen. And back then we had margarine and butter, but we had the butter was always in that long... I'm not sure what... Yeah, that's right. And, and, yeah, butter dish. And so I went in there to eat the whole thing. I must have been hungry. <laughs> I, I guess my mother was feeding me right, but in the dream I ate this whole stick of butter. And after I ate the stick of butter, I said, well, I'm going to go check on my folks to see if they're all right. And so I went, in, I went into my dad and mom's bedroom, and my dad was sleeping, and my mom was sleeping, and all of a sudden this big monster-like figure rose up in my dad's side of the bed, and it was him, and he had this ugly face, and I remember watching monster movies, and my dad looked just like a monster from a giant movie, and and terror filled my soul in this dream, and I I ran and jumped under the bed, and you know how you're in a long tunnel, and this bed just, I kept rolling under this bed, it seemed like two or three hundred yards, I would just keep rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling under the bed, and I finally came out on the other side of the bed, and I was really filled with fear, and I was afraid to look up to see my dad because I'd see this monster face again. So I looked up, and I was back in my room again. And I remembered that dream my whole life. And what had happened, I'll make a long story short, my whole adult life, I did not believe that my father loved me. And the enemy sowed a seed of fear in me, actually in the womb. It was, it was before this, but this dream kind of confirmed that it was very difficult for me to connect with males my whole life because my uh, natural biological father had abandoned me and my mother at birth, and I didn't trust men at all. And I didn't know that, and I didn't have anybody to tell me otherwise. So I, I would be in my home, and I would lo- love my dad with my head, but I found out when I was 35 years old that my heart had been cut off because I hadn't been prepared for war as a child. And at the age of 49, I had an opportunity to to go uh, and have prayer with a prayer counselor, and she broke the power of that spirit who had come on, on me at that time and actually in the womb. So 49 years of not feeling my father's love was erased in one session. The Holy Spirit dropped His Spirit into my spirit and just downloaded the love of the Father inside of me. And it was an unbelievable experience. And I, if you've never experienced this, I, all through my life, you see, my coaches, my teachers, even when I was in the ministry, the senior pastors, if I worked on a team, they didn't know what to do with me because I would push them away. And I would project abandonment and rejection because I didn't know that I was in a war. I wasn't prepared to be in a war. And when I got set free from that spirit of fear, 
got set free from that rejection. My father drove all the way from uh, Oklahoma and came to my house and laid his hands on me and blessed me. And then my sons, of course, I've blessed them, and, and everything has just, has just turned around in my life. Matter of fact, I just got a promotion last week at work. So I'm telling you that we are in a war. So you parents of children, you need to begin to, uh, especially if they have night terrors, any type of dream that the enemy would try to, because he's subtle. It says the wiles of the devil, that text I read last week. You need to be aware that he's trying to enter in all the way from the cradle to the grave. We are literally in a war, and many of us are not prepared for that war. But I'm going to talk today about the last four pieces of armor in the text. If you'll have your Bibles with you, if you've got them with you, or you've got your what I call the fake Bible, your app, or your, your electronic device, the church that we used to go to had probably about 10,000 people in it that were under 20 years old. So they, they, they had these little devices, and they would pull them out, you know. And they, When you get to, get to work, you can just pull out the Bible anytime and any place, you know. So we're going to look at this, this passage in Ephesians, and today we're going to talk about the pieces of armor that you and I need to put on to fight the battle. Last week we talked, not last week, two weeks ago, we talked about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And today we're going to talk about the next four. Hey, Beth, my daughter's here today. Good to see you, honey. The, first, the last four pieces of armor. And we're going to end with prayer, and I'm going to tell a, a parable about the muddy dog at the end of the message. So let's turn with me, uh, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look on the screen there. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles is schemes, methods, tactics, strategies, secret agendas, and repeated incalculable variety. So we've got to be prepared. For we do not wrestle against mom and dad. Flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand. You notice that word stand. It's used a lot, isn't it? Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, you say that with me? Above all. All means all. Yes, it does. I looked it up in the Greek. It means all. <laughs> Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. I'll talk more about that in a minute. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. 
And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless the reading of His Word. May we understand it today as we seek Him together. Now, last time I was with you, we talked about the fact that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Just a little review. We went through the first pieces of armor, first three pieces of armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel peace. I said that the first three pieces of armor I mentioned have to do with attitude. And that's what Nelson preached last week, isn't it? Okay. I wasn't either, but yeah, that's, he preached on attitude. And they also concern with who we are in life. You see, Paul placed the armor in order to help us better understand how to battle the enemy in the kingdom of God. So these second three pieces of armor, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit are what we put on to do warfare in the battle. In other words, when a person goes out to battle, a football player, for instance, has got to wear his helmet. If he doesn't have his helmet on, he's going to get his head beat in. And even, even times they still get a concussion, don't they? It's good to know how to fight. The seventh piece of armor, and some commentators say that, that prayer may not be a piece of the armor, but it, it's not a physical piece of the armor, but it, it covers all the other pieces of armor. Brother, you know as, a, as a, a prayer warrior that prayer has to cover all the other pieces of the armor or you're just standing out in the battle with no covering whatsoever. You're just you're putting on the armor, but you're not praying as you're putting the armor on, and you're not warring to take uh, authority over the enemy. Now, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Now, look back in the text. It says, above all... Now, it's interesting that that little phrase right there is packed full of what I would call the, the way that you shield yourself from everything else by superimposing the shield of faith over other, all the other pieces of armor. And that's the Greek word there. It says, above all taking. Those are the three Greek words. And the word literally means to superimpose over every other subject that's already been covered. Now, let me illustrate this for you. How many of y'all work in an office? Okay, do you have a, a landscape picture in your office of some sort? Okay, well, you don't. I'm sorry. We, we take up an offering, give this lady a landscape. But I want you to picture in your office, you've got this beautiful landscape. Now, I want you to imagine in your mind that on this landscape is beautiful blue skies. It's like you're in Seattle, Washington. You've got a, got a nice yellow house with black shutters, and then you've got a sidewalk in front of it, and you've got a gray street, and you've got this beautiful portrait in your, in your office. Now, the word there, above all, would mean you take a red piece of plastic and you cover over this, cover over this picture. So everything is colored by the above all. It's superimposing every other subject that's on that landscape picture. Are you with me? You hear that? So faith is what covers over every other piece of armor because without faith it is impossible to what? To please God. 
So we've got to have our shield covered with the faith of God. Now the second word is all. And it's the Greek word pas, P-A-S. And it means all subjects, all problems, all emotions, all of our thoughts are to be covered with faith. Does that make sense? So above all, the third word is analambano. I practiced that two or three times. Analambano. It means to take. You see where it says, above all, take the shield of faith. Those are two, two words, take. One is a violent term. It's like I saw this brother. I'm walking in Gardendale. This is the violence. I would grab him like this, and I'd take it. Let's say I'd take his... I'm sorry, did I hurt? I'd take his ring off his finger. That's taking. That's violently taking. I'd be violent... His fingers are swelled up, but they'd be violently taking his ring... Thank you, brother. You all right? Taking his ring off of his finger, that's what violent taking is. The other word is more passive, like... The party that I went to last night, my, our youngest son got engaged to his girlfriend in front of 60 people. I felt like I was on The Bachelor. <laughs> we met at the, at the young lady's parents' house, and they had lights streaming everywhere, and they had big signs that said, Iron sharpens iron. And My wife had made these two flower pots and put the engagement ring in it over here, and all of us were hiding in the house. And, he drove up with her, and we were all hiding in the basement. And he went up, I won't do it with the guys. But he, he went up to her and just gave her the ring, and she took it as a gift from my son. That's the kind of faith that God's talking about. But you know what? She had to receive the gift, and she had to say, I choose to take this as a gift from you. That's the faith. I think it's, a, I think it's a, the middle of the road. You've got to ask the Lord. And this is what you say to the Lord, brothers and sisters. Lord, I trust you. And then see what God does. Lord, Lord, I trust you with this direction. Lord, I trust you with my children. Lord, I trust you that things aren't working out. But I'm going to trust you, Lord, that things are going to work out. And that's the word that means to take. I trust you, Father. Ana Lombano. I unambano you. The problem, you see, comes out of you and the problem goes to the Lord. In other words, if your car is parked in the parking lot and you say, Lord, I trust that someone's not going to break into my car. I put on the shield of faith over my car and someone ends up breaking into your car, you can say, well, God, that's your car. It becomes his problem so that you don't have to worry about it. I've had things stolen out of my car, and I don't get all upset over it. I want to maybe do something in the flesh, but, you know, it's just a car. You see, the shield of faith is so, so important. So, so important. Now, why do we put on the shield of faith? So we can quench the what? Fiery darts of the wicked one, incendiary missiles, those arrows that are dipped in pitch that the, the Roman soldiers, you see, they had these shields that were four feet long and two feet wide. And they put these shields on and they keep them uh, 
from receiving these arrows that were coming at them, they, they'd have a, a little thing that they called in Latin, it was testudo, but it was a, the English word is they made a tortoise. It, you know, you've seen a tortoise shell? That's what these Roman soldiers, and there was 27 of them, I believe, 21 would put their shields up like this, the other seven would be right here, and no arrows could touch them. It's kind of like the body of Christ. You see, you don't, you don't fight in the war by yourself. You don't go on the battlefield with one shield and one shield over here and standing out in the field in your underwear. No. You've got on the whole armor and you've got a bunch of people around you that are fighting with you. So that's the shield of faith. So what are the, what are the arrows, these arrows that are dipped in pitch? What are these javelins that are hurled from us? These missiles, if you will. Well, it's, I'll, I'll get to you this way. If you've ever been driving down the car, uh, the, the road in your car, and these ugly thoughts just kind of pop in your mind, coming from nowhere. I mean, these are, I wrote down some of the, like blasphemous things, sexual perversion, I mean, suicidal thoughts. Uh, all these kind of thoughts come against the character and goodness of God, and they're just, and you're going, well, where did this come from? You know it's not coming from you because Jesus Christ lives inside of you. So those are the fiery darts that are coming from the enemy. So you've got to put on the shield of faith to do warfare against the enemy. Now, you've put on the shield of faith. What is faith? Yeah, say that again, brother. That was good. That was good. Hebrews 11.1 would be a good place to go, but there are three kinds of faith. There's one that's saving faith, where you trust Jesus. There's sanctifying faith, which I think he's talking about here. And then there's supernatural faith, which is a spontaneous gift from God. But I think he's talking about the faith that's uh, sanctifying faith. And in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, the Scripture says, Be sober and diligent, Vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion. And listen, the reference Paul's using here is of a lion that is old and doesn't have any teeth because it says like a roaring lion. He's roaring, ladies and gentlemen, but he doesn't have any teeth. Why? Because the book of Colossians says that Jesus triumphed over him on the cross, stripping him of all his power, defeating principalities and powers, rose from the dead, is seated now at the right hand of God, and the enemy now has no power. He doesn't have any teeth. So why do we give him that power? We don't have to, because we have the shield of faith. And then it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our... Faith. So, you see, faith is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He places God's faith. It's God's trustworthiness. It's God's faith that's put inside of of you. But faith in and of itself doesn't protect us against Satan. Rather, it's the object, the focus of our faith, God and His powerful presence in our lives. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Psalm 5, verse 12. This is a good one. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. 
You will surround him as with a shield. We are surrounded with the favor of God. That's some good news, church. 2 Samuel 22, 3. The God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. The fiery darts are violent. They're coming, you know... In my research, I found out that one soldier sometimes had to deal with 220 arrows at one time. And it hit the shield because the shield was made out of two layers of, of wood, laminated wood, and it had tar on the top of it. And as soon as those arrows hit that shield, guess what? Boop! That, that, that wasn't a very good impersonation, but you know what I'm saying. just went right down to the ground. And, you know, those dudes practiced. This is another interesting fact. These dudes practiced by having their friends run their chariots over them. They, they got down way, way low with those things, way down here. And then they asked the, the, their buddies to run over them with a the chariot to make sure the shields were working. Now, do you ever feel like the enemies run over you like a chariot? Well, you've got to get others around you that will hold up your shield. But we, we've got to fight, ladies and gentlemen. We've got to fight with faith. Listen to Hebrews 11. I like this. It was Moses' faith in the glory of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And look at verse 26 esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That's the faith. He had the shield of faith on him so that he could look forward to the reward. Now let me give you three quick venues here. Here's one, and I think this is for someone today. God, uh, God has put on the shield of faith, and the enemy comes and whispers, God may have cared about you once, but He's not interested in you anymore. He's gone. You ever heard that? You lift up your shield of faith and you say, that's impossible. God is immutable. He can't change. His concern for me is eternal. What He has promised, He'll fulfill. Here's another thing. God doesn't love you anymore. That's the one He used on me. God doesn't love you. Your dad doesn't love you. Your mother doesn't love you. They left you at the hospital. They're... They don't love you. They don't love you. Your wife doesn't love you. I don't think that anymore. That doesn't come. That's impossible. God's love for me can't cease to exist, for He demonstrated it. And while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. God has demonstrated His love before I was even saved. My goodness. That's the shield of faith. You ready to put that one on? How about the helmet of salvation? This is my favorite, the helmet of salvation. I could have preached just on this one, brother. I mean, this, this helmet of salvation is awesome. Awesome. Helmets are a form of security. You know that? Most of us have used a helmet at one time or another. Sports, you know, I, I get sort of compulsive when I'm... Uh, doing these messages, I just went through and I said, football helmet, hockey helmet, NASCAR helmet, lacrosse helmet, 
BMX helmet, skateboarding helmet, equestrian, baseball, speed skating, skiing, snowboarding. I mean, unless you're in Florida or Texas, they don't wear helmets when they wear motorcycles because they say it confines people. Let me tell you, it, it's a good thing to put on a helmet. I don't care where. And then it's one thing to own a helmet, and it's another thing to put it on. There are a lot of Christians that own a bunch of helmets, but they never put them on. See, you've got to put on the helmet of salvation. Let's talk about the helmet. Let's talk about the helmet. You know, I remember when I worked for the Birmingham Parking Authority, I had to wear a helmet when I went into the deck. And I remember when I worked for Colonial Baking Company uh, back in the 80s, I didn't have a helmet. And I went up under a steel beam and that steel beam was sticking out with a corner. And my head came up and hit this steel beam and knocked a hole right in my brain. 4.30 in the morning, the supervisor took me, to, took me to the doctor, sewed up my head, and I went back and finished my shift. And my wife, when I came home, how was your day? Well, I, I got a piece of steel driven in my head. Because why? I didn't... I didn't have on the helmet. She's still shaking her head back there. That was 30 years ago. So it's important to wear a helmet. Listen, the helmet is designed by God. Wouldn't you love... He's better than Nike. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, that helmet that those folks wore had this little sponge in the, inside of it. But God has designed your helmet for you to wear. Listen, He... He said he wears a helmet on his head. The Hebrew word means to surround the head. It means to encircle the head. It means to put on the helmet. They, they had two types of helmets. One of them was called a kulus, C-O-O-L-U-S. And it was a, just a flat piece of metal. It was kind of like back in the 40s when football players had those helmets. piece of leather on top of your head. But then 10 years before Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, they came up with this other helmet. Have we shown that, brother, the helmet of salvation? The, the helmet, this helmet right here. You see, see how that helmet covers you up? It covers, excuse me, I'm going to go over here. It covers the whole neck, covers the sides, covers the front. The only thing that's showing are your eyes, your nose, and your mouth. That's the helmet that we're to put on in the armor of God. The helmet of salvation, it covers us behind, on the sides, and even protects our face. It's wonderful. The grammatical structure of the text makes one thing perfectly clear about what the helmet is. See, these Romans wore, wore this helmet, but we have a helmet. It's the helmet of salvation. And this is the first scheme that the enemy uses in warfare. If you'll trace back in the book of Ephesians... In your spare time, read Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about the helmet of salvation. The number one problem that I've, I've run into with Christians is that we doubt our salvation. But the helmet, if you put that on, will give you the assurance of your salvation. The helmet is likely that reference. And Satan knows how he can gain a, a major advantage. And I've just written a, a few of these things that come. Uh, these thoughts, I wrote down a bunch of thoughts on this piece of paper that come to us. I'm stupid. 
I'd be better off if I was dead. I don't deserve to be happy. I'll never amount to anything. It's my fault. I'm useless. God hates me. No one will ever love me. Nobody cares. I'll never change. My marriage is in trouble. It'll never get better. My children will never come to Christ. My God, would you remove the boss? He stinks. I hate him. (laughs) Give me another job. There's no Christians there. My goodness, I've never done anything worthwhile. Next week, I'm going to lose my salvation. Last week, I was saved, but I'm not sure I'm saved this week. It'll never get any better. Nothing I do is important, and I deserve to be miserable. Now, that was fun when I was preparing this message, let me tell you. But this is a truth. And, but but that's, that's why we have to put on the helmet. Now, listen to a passage. This will help you. Romans chapter 8. This is the salvation message. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And verse 31 through 38. If you learn this passage, what then shall we say if God is for us, the helmet of salvation, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ Jesus who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Stop right there. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Nobody. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded, say this one with me, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the helmet of salvation, beloved. The next time the enemy comes to you with a bunch of thoughts saying, well, that's impossible. That's impossible. For I'm kept by the power of God. No one's going to ever snatch me out of the Father's hand. I'm in love with Jesus, and He's in love with me. I'm His son. I'm His daughter. He died for me. He rose again for me. My marriage is not in trouble because I have Jesus. My children are not in trouble because I have Jesus. And I put on the helmet. I put the helmet on my head. I put the helmet on my side. I put the helmet on my back. And I walk free in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let's go to the third piece. The third piece is the sword. Not only the shield and the helmet, but the sword. I like the sword. Wave that sword. Well, the Hebrew word is a sharp, cunning instrument. God will cut through the resistance of man. In the Greek, there were two swords. One was a knife or a short sword, the length of your forearm, close at hand, hand hand-to-hand fighting. See, the, the arrows that come are way, way away. How do you know if it's your thoughts or the the devil's? Uh, The devil's thoughts are going to come from nowhere. Your thoughts are going to come from a continuous pattern that you may be living, some sin or some addiction that you want to get rid of. Does that make sense? It's a pattern where the enemy will just boop. You need to leave your wife. 
you know, that subtle thing, you need to do this. But here, the sword is the word, and it cuts, it cuts to the very core of who we are. Now, we don't want to be dogmatic here, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25, 1 Peter 1, 25, the Scripture says, the word of the Lord remains forever. And then in Revelation 12, 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That's good news, church who accuses them day and night before our God. You felt accused day and night? Well, he's going to be thrown down and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives unto the death. The Greek word there, uh, word, is rhema. And this is a whole other teaching in itself, but there's the logos word and the rhema word. Many people believe that the logos word is... uh, the whole entirety of the Scriptures, the body of the Scriptures. Rhema is a spoken word for the moment that will deliver you from an onslaught of the enemy. Now, some, in some instances, uh, they're interchangeable. But what God is saying here is that we need to say, it is written. When the enemy comes with those thoughts, you need to take authority over those thoughts, take every thought captive, Make it obedience to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Take those thoughts captive and use the word. No, and say to the enemy, it is written, it is written, it is written, and speak the very word of God. So we proclaim the word, we pray the word, and we praise with the word. And the final piece of armor is prayer. Prayer is the power behind the armor. Let's look at that in Ephesians chapter 6. We're coming in for a landing and I'm going to share with you the parable of the muddy dog. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let me just summarize that with we start with truth and we end with prayer. We pray always. Thessalonians says pray without ceasing. We pray with the Spirit and we pray with the mind. We pray with supplication. We pray in the Holy Spirit, watching with all perseverance for all the saints. You see, we need to pray, pray, and do some more praying. We pray with all prayer and petition. We pray silent prayers. We pray audible prayers. We pray public prayers, private prayers, short and long prayers. We pray fasting prayers. We pray feasting prayers. We pray with praise. We pray with petition. We pray with intercession, rebuke, doctrinal praying. Open the scriptures and just pray, Jesus, you are the invisible, you are the image of the invisible God, the creator of the universe. And this morning when I wake up, Lord Jesus, I worship you. For you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we pray that way. 
We pray emotional praying. Praying with groans that, that are deep inside of us because we don't know how we're to pray. Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27 says that we, pray, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit intercedes through us to pray His will. We resist the enemy in our prayers. We pray with thanksgiving, confession. We pray for healing. And we pray in spiritual warfare. We pray for ourselves and others to give insight and understanding. We pray with resistance. I remove from me right now the, the right of the enemy to have to come into my life. We pray protection. We pray over our land. We pray like in the, in the Psalms, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. We walk out in our front yard and bless our neighbors. We walk out in our backyard and bless our pets. We walk out everywhere and we bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that's within me. We bless His holy name. When you go to your school, when you go to your work, walk in and bless your office. Pray a blessing over your boss. Pray, pray a blessing over your co-workers. Pray that you'll all succeed and there won't be any kind of enemy presence there. And it works. That's the armor. And I want to close with a parable that I found that says it all. It's called the parable of the muddy dog. I'm going to have to read most of it. I couldn't memorize it. It's, it's pretty good. One rainy night, a young man named Bob heard a scratching at his door and opened it slightly and he saw a tiny puppy, cold, wet, needing help. He threw open the door, bent down, and when he did, a vicious dog rushed past his beautiful house and ran inside the house. Bob was terrified. How could he have been so wrong? Through the crack, it looked so different. Bob's house was filled with expensive furniture and valuable gifts his parents had given him. Frantically, he tried to catch the dog, but the animal was too quick and too dangerous for him. It snarled at him, bearing fangs, and leaped onto his bed and tracked filth into the covers of his bed. Bob drew back in terror and ducked behind a chair. He didn't know what else to do. This dog had entered his house. The name of a do the dog was Addiction. And like a hurricane, it tore into his life. Instantly, it began destroying everything he owned. Nothing was spared. His job, his family's health, seemingly everything was consumed by it. It stole his bank account. His girlfriend left him, canceled plans for their wedding. So amazed that so much damage could be done by just opening the door slightly. But there were the results. Everything was in ruins. He was wiped out. It isn't worth it, he wept. I don't want this dog ruining my life. But the dog would not leave. It stayed, it stayed, it stayed. It wouldn't go. And Bob began to look like the dog. His clothes, his hair, and the color of his skin came to be like his new master. They even smelled the same. And Bob became ugly like the dog with yellowed, snarling mouth that attacked everyone who came to his house and to his door. Even his mother fell victim to the dog. For months, she tried to get in the house and rescue her son from the dog, but she couldn't come near. Nothing seemed to work. Even she had a few words with Bob. Through the crack of the door, the dog quickly appeared and began snarling at the mother. The mother prayed and prayed for help. One day, she was on her way to her son's house when an old friend approached and pressed a book into her hand. The friend said, I wrote this book. 
I will tell you how to get rid of the dog. Really? Will it really help? Yes, the man said. I fought that same dog many years ago and won. He remembers me well. You will find instruction in the book on how to conquer the dog. With that, her friend disappeared and the woman hurried away. Anxiously, as she read through the pages, her eyes fell upon the important line in the book. No one can enter the mad dog's house unless he first binds the mad dog. Then he can safely enter and take whatever belongs to him. But how do I catch the dog to bind him? The woman wondered and frantically continued searching for answers. And as she read, she discovered other important facts. The dog was a trespasser and had no right to be in her son's house. The animal was really a thief who came to steal and to kill and destroy. And she continued reading. As she continued reading, she felt an unusual anger swelling up in her. But it was more than anger. It was like a powerful authority. Then wonderfully, her eyes fell on another line her friend had written. It said, Behold, I give you power to tread on mad dogs and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing and nothing shall hurt you. That's wonderful news. Quickly, she turned the pages for more, and there it was. Every page was packed with valuable information. Her friend had also written, These signs shall follow those who believe. In my name they shall cast out mad dogs. And a flash of light shot through her head. She had already learned two important letters. First, she had to bind the dog. And second, she had to cast him out. She didn't understand how this was to be done, but somehow she knew it could be. Her friend would not have told her to do it if it weren't possible. The next time she saw, the next line she saw brought her to tears. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that He might destroy the works of the mad dog. So good. Every page was filled with words of powerful encouragement. It was then she realized something she'd missed before. There was a similarity between the suffering of her son and the friend who had given her the book. In his battle against the dog, he had suffered. He was also a son, and the book talked about his father. And because of his suffering and victory over the dog, the father had put all mad dogs under the feet of the son and explained that all things were now in subjection to the one who had given her the book. The woman got excited. The man who wrote this wonderful book was not a dead author. He was still alive, and he was her personal friend. Her eyes then fell on an amazing promise. It was as written to her personally, for as much as your son is a partaker of flesh and blood and is subject to the attack of the mad dog, I also took part of the same that through my battle with the dog and my death, I might destroy the animal who had the power of death and deliver your son who is now in bondage to the dog. The dog was going to be bruised under, her, under his feet. That was all she needed to know. She turned on her heel and started running toward the, her son's house. She said, I had submit to you. Do you not read in my word? He said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go in my name and cast out the dog and I will be with you always. She leaped to her feet, went running to the house, and along the way she glanced at other homes. Some of them looked dark and foreboding. She knew a dog was in some of them too. The faster she ran, the more powerfully the other messages in the book began to coming to her. 
This time they became expressions of her personal faith. As she neared the door, she realized that her hands had become like hands of steel. And her eyes blazed down at a part of the book. It says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will rescue my son from your control. In the name of Jesus, I bind you, mad dog. Before she could realize what was happening, her hands clamped around the dog's throat like a steel trap. She seized him with the fury of a grizzly bear, swinging him overhead. She hurled him through the open door and out into the street. Hallelujah. He hit the pavement with a splatter of blood and dog hair. And she ran toward him. A strange thing happened. He suddenly came back to life to the size of a baby puppy. He was the same size as the night that Bob saw him with his tail between his legs. He went yelping into the open sewer and from deep inside the pipe, she could still hear him whining and crying. A moment later, her son came running and shouting from the house, It's gone, Mama! It's gone! The dog is gone! He laughed and cried as he grabbed the mother in the arms. It's gone! The dog is gone from my life! And the two hugged and kissed and wept and laughed for a long time. And finally, they went back in the house and began restoring the rooms. It wasn't easy to do. Carpets had to be cleaned. Drapes replaced. Garbage bags had to be removed. But victory had come into his life. And a month passed, and then the strangest thing happened. One rainy night, Bob was home alone when he heard a faint scratching at his front door. When he peeked out, there were some helpless little puppies he had seen before. He looked like an innocent little puppy that needed someone to love and cuddle. There's no danger in him now. Bob thought, he looks so helpless. I will let him in. But as he started to open the door, he remembered the passage in the book his mother had left him. Flipping it open, his eyes fell on the words that seemed to lift off the page. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he'll find it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Bob slowly closed the door, locked it, and went to a nearby window. He was shocked at what he saw. The yard was filled with other dogs. They were everywhere, hiding in the hedge, under his car, and a few peering around the corner of the house. Some were more vicious and evil-looking than the first one. If he had fallen into the deception of bringing that new little dog up, pick up in that puppy... Picking up that puppy, they would all storm into his house. No, I've learned my lesson. I won't do it again. A few days later, Bob was in his yard when a stranger pushed through the hedge and came toward him. There was an expression of love, kindness in the man's face. It was his mother's friend, the one who had written the book. With tears, Bob grabbed his hand, bowed his head and whispered, You've done so much for me, I didn't even know you. You saved me from the mad dog. I want to know you as my friend too. You and your mother did not wrestle against the dog, he said, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now you go in my name and set other captives free. He smiled and said to me, I will be with you till the end of the age. There's some of you here today that may have a mad dog that's trying to come into your house. And I'm here to encourage you to put on the full armor of God and don't 
open the door. You see, the enemy has no legal right to you unless you give it to him. It's what one of my mentors used to say. He either comes by invitation or intrusion. And you control the invitation. You're not necessarily controlling the intrusion, but you can control the invitation. And I want to lead us in a, in a prayer at the close of this message as we put on the full arm of God just to, to, uh, to encourage you to every day put on this armor. So would you pray with me? Father, we confess. For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eagles Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.